Glory matters and people matter. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5 in our ongoing series through this book. We're going to resume that this morning. And uh, interestingly, the theme of being a church that cares in practical and tangible ways for people in need, a bit of a broader context to our focus this morning, is actually the theme of the passage this morning. That was not planned by me. That's one of those wonderful coincidences um, that start to look fishy when you have a sovereign and providential God. But here we are in 1 Timothy chapter 5, so I'd encourage you to turn there. I want to read this passage, as is our custom, sort of from start to finish, uninterrupted. Hopefully you've been reading this passage this past week, so you're already at least somewhat familiar with it. Uh, Let me remind you, if you haven't done that this week, that we list the passages of Scripture for the next few Sundays in our bulletin, and we do that specifically so that you can know what's coming with the encouragement that you would either make that part of your regular Bible reading or simply add it to your regular Bible reading throughout the week so that when you come here on a Sunday, you kind of already have a sense of what we're going to walk through because it's so helpful to know what's in the text and then to hear it read verbally uninterrupted before we come unpack it and see what God has for us. This morning our text is 1 Timothy chapter 5 verses 1 through 16. Paul tells Timothy, do not rebuke an older man but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return for their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. Now she who is truly a widow is left all alone. She has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. So command and teach these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works, if she's brought up children, has shown hospitality, washed the feet of the saints and cared for the afflicted and devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying things that they should not. I would have the younger widows marry, bear children, manage households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If a believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. This is God's word for us this morning. This ongoing series uh, in the book of 1 Timothy, this passage initially may stand out as a little bit unusual. After all, this has been a book, as we've seen from the beginning, that is about um, a church uh, focusing on what it believes and in turn then living out what it believes in order to put Jesus on display. As we've uh, said each week that we've studied this text, really kind of the message of the book of 1 Timothy for a church like ours can be summarized this way, that what a church believes 
uh, determines how that church behaves, how we live out the gospel with one another. And the way that we live our lives, actually, if we're doing it according to the gospel, puts Jesus on display. Our lives announce the truth that Christ is good and Christ is Savior and King. And so the church is pictured as sort of a pedestal in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 15, on which Jesus Christ sits. We uphold Christ as King for the world to see by how we live out our life together with one another as members of a church. And so we've seen that get applied to all sorts of doctrinal issues in the church and individual performance issues. The Apostle Paul has repeatedly uh, taken members of this first century church in the town of Ephesus to task for being sort of selfish and self-willed and self-assertive and trying to pursue their own wealth and their own position because then they're really just putting themselves on display to say, say, look how great I am, look how rich I am, look how eloquent I am, and they're not putting Jesus on display. And then seemingly, perhaps, out of the blue, we get this language discussion about how the church administrates its program for caring for widows in its midst. And what in the world does that have to do with the message of this book? Well, that's a good question. But upon closer examination, we find that many of the same themes that have been running throughout the book are here as well and simply applied to a new situation. It actually starts in the first couple of verses of chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, where he tells Timothy, remember Timothy was left there by the older and more experienced apostle Paul uh, to be the lead pastor in this church and sort out some of the problems with it. So he's in a position of authority, but he's a relatively young man. And so he says, as you're doing all of this teaching and rebuking and showing these Christian people where they're wrong and how to clean up their act, he says, just, just remember... Remember, Timothy, that you're to treat guys that are older than you as fathers. Don't, don't rebuke them and just like get in their face and have this big like self-righteous attitude. You know, it's like, hey, address them respectfully. Yes, you're teaching the Bible, but address them respectfully. And while you're at it, address older women respectfully too. Treat them like they were your father or your mother, um, not just people who are like under your authority. And even for younger people, treat them like brothers, people you care about. Treat the younger women in your church like sisters. Be pure in your intentions toward them and treat them like family members. And the upshot of all that is simply this. The church, a local church, is and therefore should operate as a family. A local church is and should operate as a family. I'm a little ahead of myself on my slides there. And that, that relates to this, this whole message of the book of 1 Timothy because you see the point is if a church believes truly as members that we are a family, then we behave like a family. And if we behave like a family, that actually puts Jesus on display. And how does that last part work? Well, Jesus addressed this himself. For example, in John chapter 13, verse 35, right after Jesus famously uh, washed his disciples' feet the night before that he died, took the place of a servant and, and cared for their very unflattering personal needs. And they were like, Jesus, you're the big man. You can't do this for us. He's like, no, I have to do this for you. And then right after he finishes, he says, you guys get what I just did to you? So you do the same thing to one another. And then he calls it love. He says, love one another. And then in verse 35, he says, this is how all men will know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. Interestingly, he doesn't say your love for them. He doesn't say go, go love the world and serve your community and that's how they will know that you're my disciples. Although we should and we do and that's a very good thing. That's just not the emphasis here. There is a special call, he says, that his followers have to love one another in very physical and practical and tangible 
ways by serving and meeting one another's needs. And he says, this is how people know you're my disciples because that's who I am. (laughs) I'm God who comes to love and to serve and to meet people's needs. So if a church believes we're family, then we behave like a family. When you behave like a family, it displays that Jesus treats us better than we deserve. So to carry this out, first century churches often had programs that they would administrate in place uh, to care for some of their own members who were most in need. And in today's passage, um, Paul singles out one such program in the first century Ephesian church that was running into some real problems, and he wants to talk about it. Uh, The program in question was a sort of a long-term basic needs care of elderly widows within the church. Now, just a couple things to point out before we jump into what this passage means and what we should take away from it as modern-day Christians. Um, First of all, we should bear in mind that this was probably not the Ephesian church's only um, program for for mercy ministry or benevolence care. This is probably not the only thing they did, you know, financially or tangibly to help meet needs. This is just focusing on one specific aspect of what they do. And so a little bit later when we get into the passage and we see the Apostle Paul um, telling this church to include certain members in the program and exclude other members, don't hear that as we're just not going to care for those people at all. He's talking about it in context of one specific church program. But second thing to say is that even though this text is about a specific member care program in one specific church that existed 2,000 years ago, So it's very specific. Nonetheless, there are some principles here that help all churches at all times think about how we care for all of our members and members of our church family who are in need right now. So what we're going to do is we're going to kind of walk through a little bit of what was happening in this Ephesian church, distill a couple of principles from that that guide all churches, and then end with maybe some thoughts about how we can put that into practice here. That's where we're headed this morning. We begin with kind of their issue, uh, what was going on in this church, as best we can tell, mostly from this passage as well as a couple of other allusions that are made in other parts of Scripture. Basically, the problem that's addressing it, that, that the Apostle Paul's addressing is this. Um, this church, again, had this, this program for basic needs. So that, that meant things like food, clothing, maybe money, but things that they would um, provide to members of their church who were elderly uh, widows, older widows, who likely... Um, would have been destitute at least and might in some cases have even starved to death if, if the church didn't do something. And so they're like, well, we're not going to let some of our own members starve to death if they're in a financially a destitute situation. And so they created this program to provide some very practical, physical, and financial need so that these widows could just have basic care, clothing and, and food, that kind of thing. Um, and we're going to let one of their own members just die in poverty. So some of the, some of the money that they gave in tithes went to support a few of the, the widows in their own congregation. Now, why widows? Why did widows get called out here in this particular uh, ministry program, in this church? Well, it was certainly true that the Old Testament um, directly commanded the ancient Israelites, um, this is even like before the Ephesian church here, um, to actively care for orphans and widows within their midst, to provide for them financially. And the reason is simply because in um, an ancient sort of family-based or you might say clan-based ancient Near Eastern culture, somebody who didn't have a clan, an orphan, they had no father, they had no family name, was really at high risk of not having any way to be provided for financially. They were at a high economic risk. And likewise, 
uh, widows who had very few um, rights as we think of them today, women in general back in those societies, women often lived on, you know, by being members of families. They were supported by their families. And so if you have a widow whose husband dies, then she too was in a financially vulnerable situation. So the bottom line was the ancient Israelites were told to care for those most financially vulnerable members of their own society. Now, interestingly, the way that you fast forward, and now we're in first century Rome, where Paul is writing to uh, Timothy, and the way that Roman society worked in the Roman Empire was kind of different than those ancient Near Eastern societies. Um, Roman uh, women had more opportunities for self-support, we'll talk about what those were in just a couple of minutes, um, than some of the ladies in the ancient Near East, but nevertheless, it was still true that older widows in particular were still among the most poor and economically vulnerable members of society, hence the church's program. Easy enough, what was the problem? Apparently, here was the problem. Within this one particular church, we've already sort of seen the culture of selfism that, that drove who they were. People asserting themselves and wanting the high positions of teaching and authority, and they were teaching false things. The Apostle Paul dealt with that in chapter 1, and again in chapter 4. And then, so you had these men who were trying to be teachers so that they could shore up their own position, and they were arguing and debating so that they could be seen who was right, and the church was not being helped. And then you had women in the church who were following suit and trying to assert themselves and display their own wealth and their own position, and like everybody's fighting for him or herself. And apparently that that same kind of attitude bled over into some of the younger women in the church who were widows. Perhaps their husbands had gotten sick and died um, relatively young, or perhaps they had joined the Roman legions and went off to the edges of the empire to help fight against the barbarians and were killed in combat or something. But regardless, there were a number of women apparently in this church who were relatively young, but they found themselves widows, and they were like, ah, I know how this works. They used their widow status as sort of an entitlement qualification card. My church has a program to support widows. My husband died. There's my status. Give me my money, right? And so you had these ladies that were like consuming church resources when that would have been better invested in widows who actually had greater need. They were essentially using the church's charity to live self-indulgent lives that discredited Jesus. So that's a little bit of the background of why this is even a topic. And the Apostle Paul is going to take his calling, if we believe we're a family, we'll behave like a family, put Jesus on display, and he's going to apply it to this particular situation. And when we get to that point, I think two principles at least sort of jump out of today's text that are more universally applicable, that don't just pertain to the first century, they're for us as well. The first principle is simply that family has a first priority to care for family, and then church family has a second priority to care for church family. So let's look at each one of these in turn. We'll sort of see where this is coming from in the passage and maybe think through somehow that might affect and impact our own lives. The first kind of main principle you run into in this text is just this very clear call that biological family, blood relations and marriage relations, um, have an obligation in God's eyes to care for members of their own family first and foremost. I don't necessarily mean first in terms of like chronologically, I just mean in terms of priority, right? Um, other forms of assistance may come in at the exact same time, but there's a, a firstness of responsibility that we all have in God's eyes to care for members of our biological family, blood relatives, marriage relatives, uh, and so on. And interestingly for Christians, this is directly connected to our faith in God to the point that there's this rather stunning and amazing statement in verse 8 where the Bible says, 
If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, that would be the closer relations that you actually live with more on a day-to-day basis. You have an even greater priority to take care of them than extended relatives. But if you don't care for your actual family, you have denied the faith, and it worse than an unbeliever. That's pretty strong language. But here the Apostle Paul has in mind somebody who is a Christian, and so they say, I believe in Jesus, but they're clearly denying one of Jesus' commands. That's worse than somebody who just says, I don't even believe in Jesus in the first place. That's why I don't follow him. At least that person is consistent. The person who says, I believe in Jesus and love him, he's my Savior King, but I don't obey him, that's a whole different issue. Now, these two things are always, here's what's really going on here. The two greatest commandments, Jesus said, were to love God and love people, right? The greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second greatest commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love people. He says this summarizes the whole Ten Commandments, and in fact, it summarizes the whole Old Testament law. Now, these two ideas, loving God and loving people, are always connected, Uh, They're always connected. We don't love God and love people separately. We don't love people more than God. It's because we love God first and foremost that manifests itself in the way that we love other people. The connection is always inseparable in the Bible. For example, 1 John 4, verse 20 makes it clear that if I say I love God, but then I hate my brother, that as I disregard the need of people around me and I just don't care, then that actually voids my claim to love God. Again, that's really strong language, but that's, that's in the Bible. Like, I get uncomfortable even saying that up here because I'm like, I'm not sure I always measure up to that, but like, that's, that's there. It's in Scripture. What that basically means is um, love of God will result in loving people. I mean, of, of course we're sinners and we get selfish and we fail to love people the way that we should at times. Uh, we sin against one another through neglect and through callousness. And that, you know, one instance of that doesn't automatically mean you're going to hell or something. It's not quite that, that kind of a situation. But what we're talking about is if the norm over time shows that I'm the kind of person that just characteristically does not care about people, especially the people that are closest to me and to whom I am most closely connected in family relationships, then my claim to characteristically love God is rendered null and void. And so verse 4 says, family relationships create a unique obligation to provide for and care for the basics of life. Now, in the context of caring for an aging parent or grandparent, which is the immediate context here, it specifically mentions in verse 4 three reasons why this is a good thing. It says, if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household. That's the first thing, loving, caring for members of my own family. In some way, the Bible says, shows godliness. There there again is that connection between my love for God and the way I love people. This suggests that um, a characteristic, heart-oriented unwillingness to care for members of my family is often motivated by ungodly desires, maybe just selfishness. I might need to provide some financial help over there, but I don't want to because I got other plans for that money and they're for me, right? 
Um, or laziness. I just don't care enough to find out or, or even think about it. Or just a basic lack of compassion. I'm so into my own world, I just never think about what my mother, father, sister, brother, grandfather, grandmother is really dealing with. I just don't spend any time there. And, and these are forms of sinful selfishness. That's not godliness. And so in some senses, caring for family members shows godliness. Secondly, it's an appropriate reciprocation for the care that our parents gave us when we were younger, in the case of parents. Verse 4 goes on and says, let them um, first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. <laughs> it's only now, in, uh, well into my 40s and having raised two children, I have a deeper appreciation for just how much my parents went through to raise me. <laughs> Funny, the food was always just there, you know? The mortgage was always just paid. I didn't even know what a mortgage was. I just went home, and home was always there. Well, that stuff doesn't appear magically, right? I know that now. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. Thanks, Dad. Make some return for that. Lastly, uh, it pleases God. This is pleasing in the sight of our God. It pleases God because it's a direct outworking of the fifth commandment, to honor your father and your mother. So, there it is. Family has a first and a priority to care for family. Now, we could spend the rest of the time talking about how that works in practice, and while we don't have that much time, let me just say a couple of things about how it is as modern Christians. We're supposed to go about living that out because the principle is pretty clear. It's really clear in the Bible. There's not a whole lot of argument or debate about it. Now, how I'm supposed to carry that out in my particular circumstances often gets more complicated, and I know a lot of us are dealing with this question right now or have in the recent past. Uh, here's just a couple of complications. I'm going to raise here more questions than I'm going to answer, but I just want to raise them so that we understand that carrying this out is a complicated process and we need to figure it out. It's not always just a simple straight line from what God said to what I should do. Uh, for example, some parents uh, these days have far more independent financial support than was available in ancient Rome and certainly than was available in the ancient Near East. Many of our parents have enough financial support from uh, public and private assistance, social security, retirement funds, life insurance benefits. There could be so many other sources of like financial support that in many cases, certainly not always, but in many cases today, elderly and aging and even sickly parents don't need a whole lot of money in order to live, you know, next week, that kind of thing. So caring for a parent in that kind of a case may be more emotional in nature or more relational in nature than it is financial. It may mean helping them navigate complex bureaucratic systems to access all of those benefits, and that's how I support them, that kind of thing. I mean, the way care looks can really change depending on um, an elderly or, or needy relative's situation. Uh, other things that complicate things, you know, by the, by the time the Roman Empire came around, uh, one of the things the Romans were really good at, there was a lot of them, one of them was building roads. And so society got a lot more mobile in the first century than it had been in ancient times. We're far more mobile even now than they were back then, but it wasn't too uncommon even in Rome for somebody to grow up in an area and then leave it and settle in a totally different region and live far apart from maybe some of their closest family relatives even more true today. Distance can complicate things, whether or not other siblings are involved. You know, we have to wrestle through what, like, care for a faraway relative or relation or parent might look like. Um, I live out of state from my parents and my in-laws, so, like, when they need care, what's that going to look like? That's something my wife and I have to wrestle through. It doesn't automatically mean they have to move here or I have to move there. There's a lot of room in between. It might mean either one of those things. I don't know. We have to wrestle through that. Another complicating factor, of course, both in the ancient world and the modern world, is limitations on my own resources and alternate competing demands for them. 
What I'm getting at here is that we should be careful never to allow ourselves to pit the Bible against the Bible. If you find yourself thinking in those terms, you can guarantee you're thinking wrongly about something. So the Bible tells me as a dad, I need to provide for my wife and my kids. And then it also tells me I need to provide for my extended family members. And if I don't have enough dollars to do both, it's not like, well, sorry, kids, you have to starve because the Bible tells me I got to care for grandpa. It's not that simple, right? There's complicating factors there that you have to work through some of those complexities. Um, honestly, and last thing I'll say is like sin, let's say the worst for last, sin just jacks everything up. <laughs> and it does in relationships too, doesn't it? What do I make of the, the biblical command to care for an aging parent if my parent isn't on speaking terms with me? We haven't communicated in years. And now dad died and mom is sick and she doesn't have enough money. What do I do? Well, that's a tough one. We don't have any relationship. She's angry at me. She disowned me years ago. Maybe care might look like, in that case, um, simply doing your part to reconcile the relationship. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Like there's an acknowledgement in scripture. I can't always control whether the relationship is good, but I can do my part. So maybe that means taking the risk of putting out an olive branch and risking getting blasted again or whatever. I mean, I don't know, but I may not even be able to care because of the relationship, but what can I do? Or even worse sins, past abuse. What does it look like to care for an aging father that sexually molested you when you were a teenager and you've not spoken to him in 30 years since? Does that mean you're just supposed to drop everything and go wait on him hand and foot? Not necessarily. Or a uh, present threat of manipulation or unhealthy behavior that may affect me or other members of my family. Like when these kinds of things come up, we're gonna have to have some real conversations about what healthy boundaries look like to protect myself and other members of my family even while I'm trying to care for these members of my family. You see the point? It's complicated. In no cases should we just assume I'm off the hook and I don't have to care for parents. We shouldn't also just assume I need to turn off my brain and go, be, I need to go do something unhealthy. That's not what God is getting at. What he's taking to task here is this idea that it's godly in general to say, I'm going to care for those closest to me because if I love God, I love people. I told you I was going to raise more questions than I'm going to answer. I'm now just going to move on. Everybody's like, thanks a lot. <laughs> Let me just say this. If you are in a situation where you're like, I'm struggling for whatever reason with what it, looks, what it means to care for a relative, and talk to wise, godly Christian friends. Uh, make an appointment. Come talk with one of our elders or our ministry staff members. We'd be glad to provide some advice. Talk to a counselor. Talk to some godly, wise, mature Christian people that have been through that. There's a lot of them in this church. We can help one another maybe sort through some of the complexity with that. So family should care for family. But secondly, the second principle that comes is that church family, next, should care for church family. And again, I, I, I say next, not in like order of, of operations, not chronologically next, I mean priority next. There's a firstness of, of calling for us to care for members of our own family by blood marriage. But secondly, understanding and acknowledging that a church too is a family. And again, that, in the Bible, that's not just a nice, cute, warm, fuzzy metaphor. It's not just a word picture. Like it's real. It's 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 real. Um, church family relationships aren't as close as marriages or parent-child relationships, but they're also not random or haphazard. And, and we would do well, I think, as modern Americans to really give that one a lot of thought because as Americans, I, this is me to the core. I've been American ever since I was born. We, we are conditioned to think so individualistically that like we, 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 you know, we speak of going to churches. I go to this church. I go to that church. 
I long for the day when we can speak of belonging to a church. It's a subtle but very important difference, right? I mean, do we recognize that I'm not just at a church to experience what goes on there and I can kind of pick up or leave anytime I want? In God's mind, it's not like you never ever leave a church under any circumstances, but there's more going on there when you become part of a church. Church is a family in a very real sense. So, three guidelines along that line kind of get emerged from this text for this first century church to figure out who and how it's supposed to care for its most vulnerable members. And I think they're helpful guidelines for us as well. First of all, three principles from this text. First of all, oops, I'm back again. I'm off, off base. Um, the Ephesian church is told to care for those widows who are truly alone. Those who are truly alone. Verse 5 makes that very clear. In fact, he starts right away, verse 3, honor widows who are truly widows. And, and the, kind of the rest of the passage delineates who's quote-unquote truly a widow that should deserve the church's financial support and, and who are, is not truly a widow that deserves the church's financial support. How do I tell the difference? Well, he tells them the first thing is like, look for those ladies that are actually truly alone in the world. Uh, she who, has, she's, uh, who is truly a widow, she's left all alone. She has set her hope on God and continues in prayers and supplications day and night. The picture here is, is, is of a woman like she's got nobody else to turn to. She doesn't have any other family for whatever reasons who could help and support her. And that's where the church kind of takes as a flag that, hey, maybe that's one of the first people we need to really be looking at. How could we help them? Secondly, a woman who had no other prospects for supporting herself. These things are all related, but they're not quite the same thing. Secondly, he tells them, prioritize members of your church who have no other prospects. Like, they've exhausted all other possibilities. And if there's truly nothing left, man, then that's when the church steps in. You see this, for example, in verse 9. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. You've got to love the double negatives. She needs to be 60 or older. That's what he's saying. Um, by the way, quick little historical sidelight. Um, you, you may have heard before that, that people didn't live very long in the ancient Roman Empire, and you're like, 60 years of age, what's going on here? Um, it is true that uh, average life expectancy in the ancient Roman Empire was something like 35. That's a statistically true statement, but it's also very misleading for our purposes here uh, because it takes into account things like infant mortality. It's like how many kids died in childbirth or died in the first few years of life because the immune systems are still building up and they didn't understand germs and have as much hygiene as we do. And so kids were constantly getting sick and dying before their like, you know, eighth or 10th birthday. So there was a lot of young, young people who died in the Roman Empire. And that brings that average age down. But here's the truth. The reality is if you survived childhood, you had a very good chance if you were in the first century Rome of living well into your 50s, 60s, or even 70s. Um, the next place that people died a lot was maybe in their uh, teens and 20s when women were having babies and a lot of women died, died in childbirth and young men were going off to war and they were killed in combat. But the point is like if you made it to your 10th birthday, your odds of becoming 60 or 70 were actually pretty good. So it was not uncommon to see a lot of 50 and 60 and 70 year olds running around in Roman times. And so he says make sure it's the really older ones that get enrolled. Now why would he say that? What, what's with that age thing? The age limit serves to focus this church's financial support on women who had no realistic means of attaining it any other way. That's why he throws out the age limit. He's like, find the people who really have needs. I alluded earlier to the fact that younger women, women in their 20s or their 30s, for example, um, had more prospects in Roman society than they would have maybe in ancient, most ancient Near Eastern uh, societies. 
Uh, in Rome, uh, women, for example, were definitely not equal to men. It, men were still in a superior position to women socially, but it was not nearly as bad in ancient Rome as it is even in some societies today. A, a woman in ancient Rome had far more rights than a lot of women in some Middle Eastern cultures do these days. Uh, women in ancient Rome, for example, were considered citizens. Now, they couldn't vote. That was true. <laughs> So they didn't have as much power to shape their government as the men did, but they were citizens. They were recognized as citizens and they had a lot of the legal rights and protections that men did as well. Citizenship was not gender-based. So women could be Roman citizens. They had legal rights. Um, women could engage in trade and, and make money. Women had businesses. Um, Paul talks about uh, the book of Acts when he goes to Philippi. The first lady he meets uh, is a lady who was a seller of purple fabrics. Like she made clothing and fabric and had her own industry. She had her own business. I mean, that was not unusual back then. Um, women and, and girls, especially when they were younger, could receive educations, um, either separate from or alongside boys. So women were not totally uneducated in ancient Roman society. And of course, being younger, uh, women in the church who were widowed had the possibility at some point of marrying again uh, and starting another family where there could be a whole family support and a husband who had other income. And so the point is that the Apostle Paul wanted the church to make sure that a widow was pursuing every other possible option that she should realistically and legitimately pursue before she started relying on the church's charity program, which could enable idleness and sinful behavior. And that leads to the third and final principle. He tells the church to prioritize widows who are truly alone, widows who are older, meaning they have no other recourse, exhaust all the other options first. And then thirdly, he told the church to prioritize widows who are known to be deeply committed to Jesus Christ. This gets back to Jesus' statement in John 13, that they will know that you are my followers by the way you care for one another. He's like, focus your most acute care on those who are truly part of, of one another, those who are part of the body of Christ, the members of this church that are, that are known because they've been with us for a while, and we've had the opportunity to see them pursue Jesus and love God. Some lady who just shows up two Sundays later and says, oh, by the way, I'm a widow. Sign me up for your benevolence role. They're like, hey, wait a minute. I, no, no, you don't need to feel obligated, he's telling this church, to hand that woman a lot of money. You don't even know who she is, and you don't know how she's living her life. The contrast here is the self-indulgent widow. He talks about uh, the, the ones um, given over to pursuing God in the rest of verse 9 and, and then in verse 10. These are women who, for example, have been the wife of one husband. By the way, that's the parallel for the elder qualification in chapter 3, that he's supposed to be the husband of one wife. You know, if there's been a, a godliness shown in the marriage, um, she's got a reputation for good works. If she's brought up children, this is not a list of to-dos. This is just like describing the life of a first-century Christian woman who's taking Jesus seriously and trying to live godly. You know, so she's shown hospitality, washed the feet of the saints, she's cared for the afflicted, she's devoted herself to every good work. If she's known to be that, then those are the kind of ladies, yeah that we want to make sure we take care of. But then look at the contrast in verses 11 to 13. Refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so abandon their former faith. He's not talking hypotheticals here. This evidently was going on a lot. There were a number of younger ladies who were not just marrying, but they were marrying non-Christian men, which is expressly prohibited from committed, for committed Christians, and often then just tanking their faith and walking away from Jesus. And what's more, whether they were doing that or not, uh, he referred to them as self-indulgent in verse 6. Some of these younger ladies were, again, using their status as a benefit card to collect free food and money from the church. And then because they had their food and their money taken care of, they're laying around all day. They're like, I'm good. 
so I'm just going to sit here and be fat, dumb, lazy, and eat my bonbons and my ice cream, or whatever the ancient Roman equivalent of all that was, right? And so they're watching soap operas as the empire turns, you know, just like all day long. <laughs> and, and, and just kind of, you know, then they're, you know, chittering and gossiping, and then they're spreading gossip and slander. I mean, it's like, these are not people who are putting Jesus on display because they're being idle and lazy. So in other words, there are some young ladies that the church is enabling sinful behavior. And he's like, call that out. You don't need to feel like you can't say that. Focus your efforts on ladies who have no other recourse and they're known to love Jesus. Because if you're just enabling people who are lazy and wasting their lives, they're ultimately reflecting poorly on Jesus. That's not what this whole thing is about. So he tells the Ephesian church, okay, when you're, when you're trying to help your widows, like, have some discernment. Family first, church family second. Church family prioritizes those who have no other recourses, who are truly alone, and those who are known to be pursuing God. That should occupy kind of the center of our decision-making. Now, what do we do with all this? What do we do with all this? That was the Apostle Paul's instructions to a first-century church. Life looks a little different now. I want to suggest at least three things to consider by way of maybe putting some of this into practice as we sort of turn the corner and head down the home stretch here this morning. Um, because a, a local church like ours is a family, relationships aren't as close as blood relationships and marriage, but they are nonetheless real. When it comes to then caring for people physically, financially, and in other ways, family steps up, but if they don't, or they can't, or they aren't there, or they're at their, their max, and it's still not enough, our relationships with one another in the church kick in. Three things to maybe just kind of help us think about how that might look. If I'm a Christian here, and this is my home church, and I want my church to be good at caring for other people and carrying out Jesus' command to love one another, to put him on display, what can I do? What can I do? Let me suggest at least three things. First of all, let me encourage you to join the church and become a member. And in this particular context, I'm bringing this up really not so much for your own sake, although there are benefits for you personally and spiritually by being a member, but that's not actually it. I'm asking you to consider joining the church for the church's sake because among other things, it helps us care for one another better when we have a really clear idea of exactly who one another is. You see what I'm saying? Membership is how we know who we is. I mean, everybody's welcome to like attend our services and, and, and come to church here, whether you're a member or not, whether you're a Christian or not. Man, we want you to come on in. But not everybody who walks in the door is, is a committed Christian who's a part of this church. And we understand that. That's the way it should be. So we have to understand like, well, then who does love Jesus and who is committed to living out the gospel together in this church? Who's going to shoulder the responsibility of making this church successful along with the rest of us? And the way we do that is through our formal membership process. By becoming a member, you're saying, I'm a Christian, and I'm going to hitch my, my wagon, hitch my thing to this wagon here. I'm going to start pulling this wagon at this church. I'm in. I'm one of us. And that actually is really helpful when it comes to carrying out some of these biblical commands like love one another. I, I just put it this way. If you're a long-term um, Christian person who's attended a church like ours for a long time, and you're kind of doing a lot of the things that members do. You're attending regularly, and, and maybe you're even giving financially to support the church, and you're volunteering for things, and you're building relationships. Like, you're doing all the membership stuff, but you've never gone on record saying, I want to be a member of this church. It creates a little bit of sort of ambiguity about your relationship with the church, 
that's not necessarily the worst thing in the world, but when it comes to us trying to carry out the command to love one another, it's just not very helpful, right? It's not very helpful. Because then it's like, okay, well, here's a need in somebody's life, and boy, it doesn't seem right to ignore it because we've known this person for years, and they've been invested, and they kind of look to me like they're members of the church, but they've never said, I want to be a member of this church. So are you a member of our church or not? Do we have this Jesus-like John 13, 35 obligation to care for you or, or not? How does that work? And essentially, if you're in that position, you're asking other Christians to make value judgments of your performance and say, you should just look at me and know that I'm a member and treat me as such, which is really awkward. Most people don't want to do that. (laughs) So it's just really helpful when you step forward and say, I want to be a member. I'm in. And then we know who we is and we can care for one another. Just think of it this way. If a church caring well for its congregation is a humming machine, then church membership is like putting a little oil on the gears and just helping it hum smoother. We just really clearly know who we is, and so we can look at us and say, how do we care for us? And we have a lot of other people who are kind of we, but they're not, they've never said they're in. It creates an ambiguity that it doesn't stop the machine from functioning. It doesn't mean care can't happen. It just sort of, it puts a little gunk in the gears that create friction and, and, and maybe cause it to hiccup and, and even occasionally misfire and just not work quite as well. Join the church for the church's sake. It's helpful. Secondly, Pursue relationships, which is one of the core parts of being a member anyway. Pursue relationships. Even if I am a formal member, becoming a formal member doesn't guarantee we'll become a loving church. It's helpful, but it's not, it's not sufficient by itself. What happens is we care for one another when there's a mutual investment in people, which takes an intentional pursuit of relationships. Even if I am a formal member, if I'm involved in the church, but I'm not really pursuing relationships, I've maybe disconnected from a community life group, I'm not in any kind of a regular environment where I'm meeting with other members of the church and we're talking about life and we're talking about what's really going on, if that's just not a regular part of my experience, week in, week out, month in, month out, then what happens over time is it greatly increases the likelihood that real needs may arise in my life, but just nobody even knows the full extent of them. And then the needs go unmet, and we sort of suffer in silence, and we go, gosh, does anybody care? And maybe that nobody even really knows, because nobody's really seeing it. Again, pursuing relationships doesn't guarantee it'll happen right. We have to take responsibility. I just recently had to tell a brother at our church who was dealing with a situation, and I knew about it, but I asked him about it fairly recently and found that it was far worse in the last few months than I'd even realized. Now, actually, I had to, I'm like, I'm sorry. I, I feel like I should have known that, that it was that bad, and I, I didn't. I just didn't see it. And maybe I have to own part of that. But you see, if we're disconnected from people, that kind of thing is more normal. And, and can I just say here, we need to face head-on, I think, a culture-spurred lie. It ultimately comes from our heart, not our culture, but American culture really puts a lot of wind in these sails, and the lie is simply this. Okay, it's great to talk about opening myself up and, and, and to, to one another so people really know what's going on, but I don't want to be a burden. You ever felt that? I have. I don't want to be a burden to people. I don't want to be seen as the needy one. I don't want to feel the shame of saying, man, I've got a need or a set of situations, circumstances that I just can't handle on my own. It would really help if some people would come alongside me and help me through with this. Like, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that lady. 
referred to this a moment ago as a culture-spurred lie. I think there's two issues here that are worth thinking about. One of them's theological, one of them's kind of personal and relational. Just real quick, here's the theological issue. I think oftentimes, maybe not always, but oftentimes when we say, I don't want to be a burden, it sounds very humble and self-reflective, but truthfully, it can often be a veiled, thinly veiled source of pride. You know, it can often just be that self-reliant arrogance that says, I don't want to be seen as somebody who doesn't have his act all together. I want to be self-reliant. I want to be self-sufficient. I want to be self. Do you see the problem? Where does that come from? It comes from pride in the human heart. It comes from a culture that says, you should be self-made. You should be able to take care of all yourself, and the best people have no needs and don't need anyone. And that's just like the air we breathe in. But, but Christian theology really helps us here. The, the theologians would say that one of the things theology teaches us is that God is the only non-contingent being in the universe. Okay, now that's theology speak. It basically just means this. God doesn't depend on anyone for anything. He's the only self-existent being. I mean, everything else in creation, the very universe itself, owes its existence to God. Colossians chapter 1 says that by the word of Jesus, all things hold together. The whole universe would just blow apart if God did not hold it together. We like to call it scientifically the force of gravity. The Bible calls it Jesus the source of all things who keeps us together. The universe depends on him. And we who are in the universe depend on so many things for every beat of our hearts and every breath that we breathe. I'm not independent. I am dependent on the the sun shining on the earth to produce the kind of food that allows us to live and the warmth and the oxygen that's in the air. And if any one of these things goes away, I die. Not to mention the fact I'm dependent upon literally thousands of different chemical interactions that take place on a molecular and a cellular level. If any one of which breaks down, I can run into serious health problems or even death and I cease to exist. You and I are so dependent on so many things and so is everything else. The whole universe is a bewildering complex of cause and effect chains, but they all end no matter how long they are and they end in one place and that's at God. He's the only, the universe's only uncaused cause. He does not owe his existence to anyone or anything. Everything owes its existence to him. And so when I say, I don't want to be seen as a burden, I want to be seen as self-sufficient, you know what I'm really saying? I want to be like God. Where have I heard that before? The essence of Satan's original sin, I want to be like the Most High. And by the way, that's the essence of humanity's original sin, too, when the serpent went to Eve and he says, no, 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 God's holding out on you. You want to eat that apple because God knows when you do, you will be like him. Doesn't that sound good? And Eve said, yeah, that sounds good. She gave it to her husband. He says, yeah, that sounds good too. They ate, they sinned, they wanted to be like God. Friends, that is the very essence of sin. So when we're saying, I don't want to be a burden, I don't want to be seen as being self-sufficient, we should consider whether that's really a bad thing. (laughs) Being seen as non-self-sufficient may mean I have the greatest take on reality of anybody here. I'm not self-sufficient. That's the theological side. Personally, let's look at this from a totally different angle. Personally, I'm not sure, we say I don't want to be a burden to people. I'm not sure that burden is even the best word to use for it. I mean, at one level, it's a, it's, a, it's a right word. It's just not the best word to describe what it means to share my life with somebody else, my needs with somebody else, and have them help me meet those needs. What is a, maybe a better word would be Relationship. 
Because all relationships consist of people meeting and caring for one another's needs. That becomes the basis of the relationship. I just told my wife and I were talking about this this week during about the sermon, and I said, you know, I, I'm, in, in 25 years, we've been married almost 25 years, I'm like, I'm probably the most burdensome person in your life. Like, and her reaction is priceless. She's just like, what are you talking about, you know? I'm like, oh, thank God that was what she said. Yeah, it's about time you finally figured that out. No. Um, but seriously, she's like, what, what do you even mean? I said, well, think about it, right? I mean, like, how much of the last 25 years of your life, your time, your energy, your thinking, your, just everything you are has gone into providing a home for me, providing food for me, caring for me, supporting me, doing life with me. I mean, that's been a defining feature of life. She's like, well, yeah, but that's not burdensome. And I said, well, that's, that's it, isn't it? Because I could say the same thing about her. So much of my life has orbited around her. And are they burdens? Well, sure, in one sense, but you don't think of them that way. You think of them as relationship, or kind of the, the hip way we talk about that in modern lingo is community. It's community. You know what? Let me give you an even better word. It's a biblical word. It's the word the Bible uses for this. You know what the word is? Love. It's that simple. It's love. Is this really about burdens, or is this about loving one another? Friends, are there needs in your life you're holding back from your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are there brothers and sisters around you that you have needs you could help meet? These are important questions. We shouldn't shy away from them. Lastly, join the church, pursue relationship. Let me encourage you also to pray for Harvest. You can pray for us. Because of John 13, 35, Jesus says they will know you're Christians by the way you love one another. They will know you're my disciples. We aspire to be a church that's known for the way that we love one another. And honestly, a lot of that happens in this church. I I constantly, as an elder in this church, hear of needs that our members had that are already met by somebody else before I even knew the need existed. And every time that happens, I go, yes, that's the church being the church. That's awesome. That happens a lot. If you've been involved in that, good for you. Let me just blow wind in your sails and fan those flames and say, keep going. At the same time, I think we can build on that. Because while that is a mark of this church, It's not yet organized enough. It's a little hit and miss, and I don't know that it's the main thing that we're necessarily known for. We would aspire for it to be even more true. Here's specifically something you could pray for. This is a time of year that our elders, among other things, try to take a look at and seek God's guidance on what things we should be pursuing as elders this year. Because there's always way more things, way more really pressing and important needs than any one group of elders can ever sort out. And that's okay. That's okay. God doesn't expect people or churches to like get everything right in a single year. But that does mean that we have to go through a process of saying like, God, what are you calling us to really focus on? What should we be pursuing right now? And and this time of year, at the beginning of every year, we kind of try to take a a hefty look at that. Pray for us in that process. Uh, Pray that God would answer that question for us. And looking at how we as a church can more effectively care for one another is one of several possibilities that are on our radar. Pray that God would do our prioritizing for us and that he would fill us with his spirit. That leads me to the last thing to say. Remember always that as Christians, love for God, love for people flows out of love for God. It comes from love for God. We don't love because we want to be loving, compassionate, kind, charitable people who care about their community and want people to think well of them. We love for one simple reason and one simple reason alone if we're biblical thinking Christians. We love because Jesus first loved us. That's explicit in the Bible. We love because he first loved us. We love him first and then we love other people. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. It says, Beloved, let us love one another in a church because love is from God. 
And everyone who's been born of God knows God. And he that does not love does not know God because God is love. We love because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts. And when we love like he loved, we put him up on the pedestal. I want to close with these uh, poetic and well-written words from those great theologians of DC Talk. Okay, I'm dating myself, but I like them. I think they're cool, okay? Years ago, they released a song called Love is a Verb. Some of you may know it. Here's one of the stanzas. Back in the day, there was a man who stepped out of heaven and he walked the land. Delivered to the people an eternal choice with a heart full of love and the truth in his voice. He gave up his life so that we might live. How much more love could the Son of God give? Here's the example that we ought to be matching. Because love is a word that requires some action. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray for your wisdom and your guidance for myself, for our church. As we read this book of scripture and seek to put you on display and honor you in who we are, Father God, would you fill us with your spirit? Would you give us the heart to experience the kind of love that you give us like never before? Maybe in a more acute way. God, I pray especially for people who have maybe been around Harvest for a little while, maybe a few weeks, gosh, maybe even a few years. And they've been listening to this Bible teaching and kind of maybe feeling a little bit on the outside of this discussion of a church talking about how to be a a church that puts Jesus on display and wondering like what that even means to be part of that church family. Father, I pray that you would make the truth of the gospel that you died for our sins to unite us with yourself in a local church. Make that more clear and also more beautiful to more and more of us. That you would move our hearts to respond to the experience of your love. And Father God, where we have become selfish and failed to care for those around us in the way that we should, I pray that you would make clear to us where we can and should move. That you would forgive us for our unwillingness or inability to move. And that you would guide us through the sometimes complicated questions involved with what it means to care with pe- for people. And most of all, that you would be displayed in who we are. We pray this in your son's name for his glory. Amen.